All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah, you know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. And this is Faye. And this is Creogs over, over coffee. coffee. All right, so we took a little break because a month of diabetes was quite a lot, um, but we're going to come back to it one more time for, I think, one of our most requested episodes, Faye, to talk about glucose management during the intrapartum and postpartum periods. So what are we going to learn today? Yes. So first, we're going to review our glycemic goals and the rationale behind these goals in labor. Um, we're going to talk about how to treat these elevated blood sugars in labor. And then finally, we're going to understand postpartum monitoring of blood sugars in those with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, as well as gestational diabetes. And the reading to follow along with is the ACOG Practice Bulletin 201, Pregestational Diabetes Mellitus. So, all right, Nick. So let's say, you know, your patient is here. They're in labor or they're here for induction and they have diabetes and they've had, you know, hopefully good control of their blood sugars up until now, but now they're in labor. So now what happens? Yeah. So, you know, we have talked about glycemic goals in antepartum management of blood sugar, um, but we also have glycemic goals during labor. And, you know, we need to have pretty strong glycemic goals during labor because of ultimately the risk of neonatal hypoglycemia that results, right? Once that cord gets cut, baby's cut off from the good sugary stuff and then is on its own and oftentimes can overshoot the insulin requirement. There's also interestingly some evidence too of fetal hypoxemia that can result from diabetes with uncontrolled blood sugars. Um, these increased blood sugars can lead to ketoacidosis and increased fetal acidosis and hypoxia. Um, so that's a whole other interesting and frankly terrifying mechanism of why we need to have good glycemic control intrapartum. Um, Absolutely. So goals, what are they? Um, initially, from ACOG, there was a recommendation that intrapartum blood sugars should be pretty low, honestly, between 60 and 100 milligrams per deciliter. 
But there was a study that showed um, tight control of glycemic targets didn't result in better in didn't result in better initial neonatal glucose concentrations compared to a more liberalized management strategy. And this is a shout out to some folks um, from where we did our residency training that published this in 2019 in gestational diabetes. So we'll link to that on our website. The goals can be kind of different, and sometimes these are honestly protocolized based on your institution. But based on the, the study that we're discussing today, the goal is really to be somewhere between 60 and 120 milligrams per deciliter. And if you're looking at the practice bulletin, you'll see that they define the goal as somewhere less than 110 milligrams per deciliter. So at least that gives us some gestalt of what we should be aiming for. What should we be doing, Faye, to monitor blood sugar intrapartum? Sure. So again, ACOG recommends checking blood sugar levels every hour in active labor. And if they're not on an insulin drip and during labor, um, you know, we would say definitely follow the protocol at your hospital because certain hospitals have adopted a more liberalized form of glucose management as uh, discussed in that previous paper by Hamill et al. that we are going to link to. So one example of this protocol, and I'm just going to give one that I, I know from my current institution, is that if the patient is not in active labor, then we actually check their blood sugars every four hours if they're someone who is well controlled. And then in active labor, we actually check them every two hours, but if they need treatment, then they will need to be rechecked an hour after that treatment. Um, and then if we actually follow Follow the Hamill et al. protocol, the plan really is to check every four hours, but obviously to check more frequently if treatment is needed. The ACOG protocol is very strict, and again, it's not the protocol at every single hospital, so we will post it on our website so that you guys can take a look at it. Um, but really, you know, the goal is to uh, check their blood sugars every hour, potentially put them on an insulin drip, etc. So we will post that onto our website, and certainly it is something good to look at if your hospital doesn't have a protocol to kind of base it off of this. Now that we know how often to check the blood sugars, you know, how do we treat someone's blood sugars if they actually have a high blood sugar? Well, yeah. So I think as we've talked about before, Faye, the gold standard, of course, is insulin. Um, you know, and when you're thinking about sort of patients who are laboring or if they're scheduled for a C-section and they're already on insulin at home, there's a couple of things that we can potentially consider. So if they're coming in for something scheduled, like say they're coming in for an induction and they're on some home insulin, um, frequently what we'll do is we'll ask patients to take half the dose of long-acting insulin on the day of their induction. So just as an example, let's say a patient's on 20 units of NPH during the day and they're on 40 units of NPH at night and they're coming in for a 7 a.m. induction and certainly they're not going to be eating too much during labor. Um, the patient can be instructed to take 40 units of NPH the night prior um, to help with basically the fasting sugar for the morning and then in the morning of the induction, you can give that 10 units of NPH as they're likely not going to be eating much during the course of their induction, and that should provide at least some basal coverage to help. Now, obviously, you don't want your patients to take short-acting insulin the day of if they're not going to be eating. So if they've got like a first thing in the morning short-acting, you want to make sure that you instruct them not to do that, particularly if they're not eating breakfast or not eating a usual breakfast. If patients are coming in 
in labor, then you want to ask them what they've taken already that day. Because obviously, no, if you started your morning and you're feeling great and you loaded yourself up with 100 units of Lantus um, and then, you know, mid-afternoon, it's like, oh, I'm in rip-roaring labor and I'm not going to be able to eat lunch or dinner. Um, that puts you in a very different position than somebody who came in and they said, I didn't take any of my insulin today, right? So yep. if they're still in labor and you've got time for long-acting insulin, if the patient is not eating, then you can kind of follow the same rule. Just plan for half of the long-acting insulin dose as sort of a way to, again, hold off on that and account for the facts that they're, they're not going to be eating their normal um, amount usually. Okay, so that takes care of some of the long-acting insulin stuff, Faye. And so again, that rule of thumb kind of is to half it if you're, when in doubt, half it a bit. Um, but what about if, say, we did that, we halved it, and then the patient's eating a little more than we anticipated, or they didn't take a long-acting insulin, or just all of a sudden they're having some elevated blood sugars during labor? Yeah, so um, when we treat these patients, again, with that goal of potentially 60 to 100, if you're following the strict ACOG protocol, or if you know, you're know you following a more liberalized protocol um, of up to 120, you will use a short-acting insulin. How much to give, again, is going to be down to the patient, uh, but this is a good time to remember the rules that we taught you before in our past couple of episodes, so definitely go back and listen to them. So again, um, just to kind of review this really quickly, in type 1s, we use the rule of 1800, which is 1800 divided by the total daily dose of insulin in units. And that is your expected insulin correction factor, meaning how much you expect their blood sugar to go down by if you give them one unit of insulin. So for example, if you calculate that their insulin correction factor is 15, then you will say, okay, well, if this patient's blood sugar is, you know, 30 above my target, then I'm going to give them two units of insulin to bring it down to target. Type 2 diabetics and gestational diabetics can use the rule of 1500, which is, again, the same. You take 1500 and divide it by the totally, uh, daily dose, and that's going to give you the, ex the insulin correction factor. So again, if you're taking 50 units total of insulin per day, you can use a correction factor of 30, meaning one unit of insulin would bring your blood sugar down about 30 milligrams per deciliter. Again, really helpful if you're covering a patient, you don't know them that well, um, you can do a insulin calculation really quickly to figure out what is the right dose to bring them down on. And then, of course, you know, again, your hospital may have some protocols uh, and you may have certain different types of sliding scales that you can order. So certainly, you know, while this is a good rule to follow, if there are specific protocols, we definitely want you to follow them for your hospital. All right, so um, that's one possibility, Nick, is to just get, keep giving the patient short-acting insulin. But what if, you know, you're basically checking their blood sugar every hour, you're giving them two, three, four units of insulin, and their blood sugar is still above target? What do we do? Yeah, so these patients are the ones who probably need IV insulin, a true drip intrapartum. Um, so as you mentioned, Faye, kind of a example of a patient who would need a drip would be folks who come into labor with very high blood sugars. For instance, they're sitting above 200. Um, those who are requiring multiple treatments with short-acting insulin, and I think probably very commonly across institution, if you're needing to treat more than two times with short-acting, most folks at that point would say, okay, let's switch over to a drip. Um, and then finally, in type 1 diabetics, these are folks who generally are going to need an insulin drip, particularly if they're using an insulin pump that's 
cannot be used intrapartum. Um, again, with all the electricity and the metal and other things in there, if they need a C-section, at least right now, a lot of times we're not encouraging the use of insulin pumps intrapartum. Now, management of an insulin drip um, really should be a protocolized event and then also should be co-managed either with, depending on your hospital, endocrinology, or maternal fetal med. So ask for help. We did cover sort of the management of an insulin drip in our prior episode on diabetic ketoacidosis, but just as a brief overview, the insulin drip's usually some sort of fast-acting insulin, like regular or one of the rapid-acting analogs. Most of the time, if blood sugar's under 200, you have a protocol in the hospital to follow for labor. Um, you usually start an insulin drip at about one to one and a half units an hour, but if the patient's in DKA or has really high blood sugars, you can start with a weight-based calculation, like 0.1 units per kilogram per hour, or even start with a bolus of 0.1 units per kg followed by a drip rate. Blood sugars on a drip should be checked at least every hour, and an insulin drip can be adjusted up and down by generally about a unit an hour, depending on blood sugar control. And again, many institutions will have protocols written out for this where you have a target defined, depending on what the blood sugar is, you make some adjustment to the rate of the insulin drip or the rate of a dextrose-containing IV fluid that's attached. Okay, so... Faye, this has all really been talking about the paradigm of high blood sugars, because I think that's honestly what we encounter most frequently, and we end up talking about it a lot. But another really scary thing can be low blood sugars with this. So in terms of treatment of low blood sugars, especially if the patient is not eating and they just gave themselves a ton of insulin, or in the type 1 diabetic patient, uh, these are patients that are going to be placed on some form of dextrose so that they don't go into DKA. Um, and again, just remember that pregnant patients are actually more likely to go into DKA and be euglycemic um, compared to other patients. So sometimes you say, oh, look, it looks like their blood sugar is great, um, but actually they're in DKA. Um, so again, as we said, with all of these things, there's usually a protocol in the hospital because insulin is, and you know blood sugar and sugar are definitely both medications that can be very sensitive for our patient population. You can certainly kill people with too much insulin. Um, but again, these patients should be placed on some form of dextrose, usually D5 normal saline if they're not eating and they're in active labor, or if their blood sugar drops below 70 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and then to figure out how much dextrose you should be giving the patient, you can generally follow the usual maintenance fluid calculation using the 4-2-1 formula for how much fluid is needed per hour. So uh, the way to calculate this is you can do 4 milliliters per kg per hour for the first 10 kilograms. So you're always going to start out with at least 40 because most people are going to weigh at least 10 kilograms. <laughs> um, 2 mils per kg per hour for the second 10 kgs. And again, most of our patients weigh more than 20 kilograms. So again, you're going to have 40 plus 20 more, 60. And then you're going to have 1 mil per kg per hour per hour for the remainder. So for example, in somebody who weighs 70 kilograms, you're going to start off with 40 for the first 10, 20 for the next 10, and then 50 for the rest. And you're going to come up with something like 110 milliliters per hour. Round that up or round that down a little bit, however you like, based on your hospital protocol. Um, and that's how much fluid that that patient usually is going to need for the hour. 
Another method to calculate this is to figure out how much dextrose is in one bag of fluid. So if you're using D5, D10, whatever it may be, and calculate it so that the patient is getting 2.5 milligrams of dextrose per kg per minute. And I'm not going to do that calculation for you here. And then the last part is for everyone who is getting some type of insulin, you should always consider ordering an as-needed dose of a D50 or a D25 injection, depending on what your hospital has. And this is going to be in the event of acute hypoglycemia in patients who may become unresponsive and not be able to take PO. And then for anyone who is able to take PO, you should follow the 1515 rule for hypoglycemia, which basically means that they sh if they are hypoglycemic and they're able to take PO, you should give them 15 grams of glucose and check their blood sugar in about 15 minutes. Um, so usually that comes out to be about three glucose tablets, which most hospitals would carry and you can order, or you can give them about four ounces of regular juice or regular soda. All right, Nick, so let's say we've gotten our patient through labor and birth, you know, they've either gotten an insulin drip or we were able to control their blood sugars without it. What about that postpartum period? Yeah, I think the postpartum period with diabetes is one of the wildest things in the world. Um, it is kind of crazy when that placenta comes out to watch the insulin requirements drop like a literal rock through a deep pond or something. Um, <laughs> it is... And kind of the other sort of things that make this challenging, right, are like the patient's finally no longer pregnant, and usually the first thing in the morning after their labor and delivery that happens is they order a nice big pancake breakfast with extra maple syrup and <laughs> all of that, and so then the sugars skyrocket. And so this really, I, I empathize with everybody who has to think about this and trying to do this because it can be really, really hard to figure out. And I don't have a lot of great advice, admittedly, with determining a postpartum period, but knowing that these requirements decrease postpartum significantly, especially if a patient's breastfeeding, one of the things that is nice to look for if you know the patient pretty well is that if they were on insulin prior to pregnancy, aiming for something that is close to their pre-pregnancy insulin regimen is a good place to start. Um, sometimes that may be an overshot, sometimes that may be an undershot, but it is something that at least at some point physiologically they should be getting close back to. So that's one place to kind of look for. If your patients were not on insulin, but they were diagnosed, for instance, with type 2 diabetes during their pregnancy, during recovery in the hospital, um, it really kind of depends on what you observed pre-pregnancy or with early pregnancy. So for, if you have a patient who, for instance, came into early pregnancy and got newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes with an A1C of 9 or greater, those folks should generally be staying on some sort of insulin. If they were less than 9, then you should have a discussion with endocrinology, maternal field med, um, and discuss sort of what might benefit the patient, potentially considering oral medications that would be safe during breastfeeding um, could be planned. Um, hopefully this is something that you're having a discussion as, as an outpatient to kind of setting the stage for future health with saying, when you're postpartum, let's keep a good eye on this and potentially start you on metformin or some other kind of diabetes analog that we talked about in that big episode on non-insulin diabetic regimens. 
The general consensus for continuing insulin, if you're going down that route, is to kind of start with half of the long-acting insulin and then put them on a sliding scale of some sort for short-acting. And then after approximately 24 hours, calculate how much of that sliding scale they needed. And then ultimately that can be turned into a short-acting insulin that they can use. Again, you always should lean into endocrinology or maternal fetal med for guidance, and then make sure the patient has endocrinology or PCP follow-up as well as they're moving from postpartum period back into their regular primary care. Um, these are things that, again, take time. They often take up titration, and the early postpartum period can be really, really volatile with blood sugar control, so you want to make sure that you're keeping close tabs on it. All right, Faye. Well, I think that that does it for intrapartum and postpartum glycemic management. Let's quickly summarize. Sure. So we first talked about why we have certain glycemic goals in labor and why, why we're so strict. And the main thing that we're trying to avoid is neonatal hypoglycemia uh, because that potentially is going to land the baby in the NICU with lots of heel sticks. And that is due to those high levels of insulin uh, that the baby's already producing with no exposure to maternal blood sugar as soon as that cord is cut. The other thing that we're trying to avoid is fetal hypoxemia um, in the setting of potential uh increased blood sugars leading to ketoacidosis and increasing fetal acidosis and hypoxia. So generally, ACOG has recommended keeping the blood sugar intrapartum between 60 to 100, though there have been studies that have now shown that potentially a more liberal target can still lead to the same neonatal outcome. So there are going to be certain hospitals that choose a goal of less than 120. In terms of monitoring blood sugar, the ACOG recommendations are checking blood sugars every hour in active labor. If your patient's not on an insulin drip in intrapartum, again, lean on your hospital protocol, but there are examples of protocols where folks in not on the active labor will check blood sugars every four hours, and then in active labor, check every two to four hours, but then rechecking in an hour if they require treatment above a threshold. Again, we'll post on our website the ACOG protocol, which is admittedly, in our experience, kind of strict compared to other places, um, but is just an example of one that you may find. In terms of how we treat the blood sugars, we tend to use insulin. And so in patients who are coming in for some type of scheduled procedure, if they're not going to be eating very much, we tend to half the dose of the insulin that they take for long acting that morning, and they can have the usual dose of their insulin at nighttime if they take nighttime insulin. We tend not to give any short acting insulin if they're not going to be eating, but certainly if they are eating, we can give them their normal short acting insulin. If you're kind of finding elevated blood sugars during labor, you're going to use short acting insulin to correct those. Again, in terms of how much to give, remember for your type 1 patients, you're using the rule of 1800, and type 2 or gestational diabetic patients, you can use the rule of 1500. Again, that's using the appropriate number divided by the total daily dose of insulin that they're taking to get a correction factor. So if you end up with a calculation that gives you a number of 30, that means one unit of insulin would bring your blood sugar down about 30 milligrams per deciliter. This is helpful also for floor management with respect to diabetes um, and is definitely one that you should have on your intern card or somewhere in your back pocket to remember. In terms of insulin drips, those who need an insulin drip are those who come in with very high blood sugars greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter, or potentially those that require multiple treatments with short-acting insulin during labor, and also those who have an insulin pump that if we can't use it for whatever reason during the labor course. 
Um, definitely, if a patient is going on an insulin drip, this is somebody that you should consult endocrinology or maternal fetal medicine, whoever's available at your hospital for. Um, and usually, we will start the insulin drip somewhere between 1 to 1.5 units per hour for a patient um, who has a blood sugar lower than 200. But if a patient's in DKA or they have significantly elevated blood sugars, we can sometimes do a weight-based calculation for their first bolus and then start with that per hour. These patients definitely need their blood sugars checked every hour as well. If you're encountering hypoglycemia or low blood sugars, um, you want to be able to use some form of dextrose to make sure that, particularly for patients with type 1 diabetes, that they don't end up with diabetic ketoacidosis. Again, usually hospital protocols, but a dextrose-containing fluids like D5 normal saline should be used in active labor or if blood sugar drops below 70 milligrams per deciliter. You can use the 421 formula to calculate a maintenance fluid rate, or you can calculate a targeted amount of dextrose based off of a target of 2.5 milligrams of dextrose per kilogram per minute. You should also have some emergency things nearby for patients who are on insulin drips. So again, a PRN order for a D50 or D25 injection, depending on what your hospital has. And then if your patient's able to take PO and you're treating hypoglycemia, give the patient 15 grams of glucose and recheck the blood sugar in 15 minutes. In terms of the postpartum period, insulin requirement is going to significantly drop as soon as that placenta comes out. You should think about putting the patient back onto their pre-pregnancy regimen of insulin if they were on one. Alternatively, in patients who were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in pregnancy or were not on any type of treatment beforehand, depending on their A1C, you can consider starting them on an oral agent or discussing with uh, their endocrinologist or the MFM team on how best to treat them. If a patient does need to continue on insulin and we don't have a pre-pregnancy regimen, the general rule is to half the long-acting insulin and to put them on a sliding scale to see exactly how much insulin requirements are needed. Postpartum, outside of the hospital, they definitely need to make sure that they're having an endocrinology or a PCP follow-up. All right. Well, I think that does it for today, Faye. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee, or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee, send us some love and we'll send you some swag. For show notes for this show and all of our other episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week, go ahead and go onto our website, www.CreagsOverCoffee.com. If you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, have a suggestion or just want to say hi, email us, CreagsOverCoffee at gmail.com.